Welcome everyone to the Football Odyssey podcast. This is Aaron Harris, and today's episode will be the first installment of our football film review series, in which I'll analyze a football film, giving you a synopsis of the plot, some background information on the production and the talent, and the strengths and the weaknesses of the film. For the first episode, we'll look at a biographical film based on the real-life exploits of one of the most iconic figures in American football, and frankly, American athletics, from the early 1900s. The film I'm referring to is Jim Thorpe, All-American. Before we begin, I want to let you know there will be some spoilers, so I encourage all of you to watch the film first, and then listen to this episode. The film is available on HBO Max and Hulu. But if you have a cable subscription, I recommend you watch the film on demand at watchtcm.com by September 5th, for they have bonus content to accompany the film. So, without any further introduction, let's get to it. Jim Thorpe All-American was produced and distributed by Warner Brothers in 1951, and stars Burt Lancaster, whose breakout role in The Killers from 1946 had established him as a leading man often casted as the physically imposing brute with a passionate heart and not the clearest of minds as he was in The Killers, or as an emotionally fueled man whose good intentions end up squandering his own reputation and the relationships he held with those closest to him, such as Sweet Smell of Success or Seven Days in May. Director Michael Curtiz, on the other hand, had already been well-established in the Hollywood studio system going back to the silent era, and already garnered awards and applause for directing films such as Casablanca, Mildred Pierce, and Angels with Dirty Faces. Curtiz made multiple pictures in a variety of genres, but it wasn't the setting or the action that drew him to his script. It was the human interest of the story that motivated him to shoot, or at the very least pursue, the pictures that he identified with. As a Hungarian immigrant, Curtis translated his feelings of being a stranger in a strange land to the screen that told stories of outsiders who overcame obstacles and rose to the occasion of bravery and nobleness, and therefore finding their own sense of self-fulfillment. Naturally, the story of Jim Thorpe, a Native American who achieved legendary status as an athlete in the face of opposition due to his heritage, would be an instant attraction to Curtis. The film opens up at a banquet in which famed head coach Glenn Pop Warner, played by Charles Bickford, is delivering a speech in Jim Thorpe's home state of Oklahoma. The speech turns into voiceover narration for the remainder of the film, as the first flashback takes us to Thorpe's childhood. His father is taking him to an Indian reservation school, but Jim escapes from his father's supervision and runs 12 miles back home. Once his father arrives back, he tells Jim that while he may want to stay on the farm with his family, he will have a better future if he were to go to school and get an education. The film, ju- the film jumps to Thorpe's first day at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Jim arrives at the campus and immediately feels out of place, as students are singing the fight song and handing out pamphlets of the lyrics for the incoming class. Thorpe's social awkwardness rubs one of the upperclassmen the wrong way, when he gives him an unwarming welcome to the school. Another student who was on the football team looks at Jim's athletic build and inquires if Jim has ever played football, to which Jim replies by asking, what's football? After an impromptu tackling drill, 
Jim displays his physical capabilities, but still shows no interest in taking part of any student body activities. Jim gets settled into school, but his grades are lackluster, and he still finds no sense of belonging or even friendships aside from his two roommates. But in a scene where Jim displays his speed at a track and field practice, Pop Warner looks on in amazement and eventually persuades Jim to join the team, where he finds immediate success and recognition. He also catches the eye of a female classmate named Margaret Miller, played by Phyllis Thaxter, who he finds out has an admiration for football players. Thorpe convinces a skeptical Pop Warner to let him on the team, but Pop, fearful that Jim will sustain an injury and be unable to do track and field, does not play him until late in the season in a match against Harvard, in which Jim makes an incredible run out of a busted play for a touchdown, kicking off his stellar college football career that ends with All-American honors and inspires Jim to pursue a career in coaching after graduation. No offers are made to Jim, however. A reason he feels is because he is a Native American Indian and instead channels his time and energy into training for the 1912 Olympic Games. His efforts result in gold medals and also leads to a coaching offer in Virginia. But his euphoria doesn't last long when the Olympic Committee strips him of his medals when they discover that he played professional baseball for one summer, rendering him ineligible for the events. To make matters worse, his coaching offer is rescinded, and Jim enters into a blinding rage. Afterwards, he has a brief stint in professional baseball before turning to professional football, where he finds equal success to his college days. He has also married Margaret, and together they have a son named Jim Thorpe Jr. I'll refrain from spoiling a crucial part in the film, in the final act of the film, but it turns Jim's future, it takes a a turn for the worse. And he finds himself alone, addicted to alcohol, and taking low-paying and humiliating show business jobs until he is visited by Pop Warner years later, who invites him to the 1932 Olympic Games. Jim accepts the invitation, but while watching the games, he feels remorse for the way his life has turned out, sitting alone in the Coliseum after the games, trapped in his head, replaying memories of his once great career. But in the end, Jim finds resolution when he unexpectedly comes across a group of young boys playing football, to which he offers a few pointers and is ultimately asked by the young boys to coach their football team, fulfilling his career goal of being a coach. The film ends in the banquet where Coach Warner celebrates and congratulates Thorpe, who is also at the banquet, for being voted into the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. Now, I was intrigued when I saw this movie available on Turner Classic Movies because, yes, it is a football movie, but also because I really wasn't too familiar with Jim Thorpe as a person as I was with Jim Thorpe, the athlete and the legend. A film is obviously compressed into a limited runtime and is made to entertain as opposed to inform, so it isn't the best place to get an accurate depiction of a person's life. But it's a good way to introduce yourself to a person or topic that you can research and find more information about and deviate fact from fiction. There are a few discrepancies in the film from Jim's actual life, such as Jim being portrayed as having one wife and one child, while in reality, he was married three times and fathered eight children. Jim also dropped out of Carlisle briefly before returning a few years later, which isn't explored in the film 
And some of Carlisle games of the Carlisle games replicated in the film aren't accurate depictions of the real outcomes and rosters. But the most revisioned element of the film is at the end when Jim finds resolve by agreeing to coach a youth football team, giving him purpose in his post-playing days. While this event could have indeed happened in Jim's life, you do more research and it feels like Curtiz and Warner Brothers decided to cut the film short on a happy note. The film spends some time in the final act dealing with Thorpe's growing addiction to alcohol, but the severity of it is pared down to a couple of scenes that display the hell he's headed toward before finally rediscovering his way in life. In reality, Jim's alcohol addiction would go on until his death two years after the film was made. Jim, like many Americans, was unable to find stable work during the Great Depression, working at times as a bouncer or digging ditches or working construction, and even pursued a career in Hollywood, working as an extra in films such as Wagon Master by John Ford or in White Heat with James Cagney, where he played a Navajo tribe member and a prison inmate, respectively. He even did a brief stint with the United States Merchant Marines as well. But Jim never found a second career after athletics and took underpaid jobs to support his family and spent his available time drinking. By 1950, Jim would be admitted with lip cancer and didn't have a dime to his name. His third wife, Patricia Gladys Askew, even pleaded for help to the press, confessing that they were indeed broke. Jim would die a few years later of a heart attack as a result of his poor health conditions brought on in large part by alcohol. But even though these details were either minimized or altogether eliminated, I still believe that as a biography, it maintains a level of credibility because it lives up to the theme and message of the film, which is to celebrate the athletic accomplishments of one of the greatest American sportsmen of the 20th century. The way in which Jim descends into alcohol addiction is dramatized, and the ending of the film is more of wishful thinking than reality. But any biographical film has a multitude of vantage points to craft a narrative of one's life. And Curtiz and Warner Brothers chose to focus on the bulk of the film on an outsider's journey into the world of American sports in which he found success, even when obstacles arrived due to prejudice or times of emotional isolation. The film does show the man starker and more complex life moments to a degree, but for a film that's made for the purpose of remembering a sports icon and the impact he had on American athletics, maybe that's all the time was needed. But still, it is somewhat of a drawback to the picture, and I can't say that I knew a whole lot more about Thorpe as a person than just him as an athlete from watching the film. Jim's story was attracted to Hollywood and was pursued a couple times before the film was actually made. MGM in 1931 purchased the rights to Thorpe's unpublished autobiography, Red Sons of Carlisle, that he co-authored with publicist J.R. Bidwell, but the project was eventually shelved. It wouldn't be until Thorpe regained public recognition when he was named the greatest American football player of the first half of the 20th century by the Associated Press that the project would resurface. But now, nearly 20 years had passed, and MGM didn't own the rights to anything that happened in Jim's life after the book. When negotiations with MGM failed, the project moved over to Warner Brothers after successful negotiations with the film's producer, Everett Freeman. 
Trouble quickly brewed over the speculated five or $6,000 payment of Thorpe's story, which, according to film historian Alan K. Rhodes' biography of Michael Curtiz, prompted Robert F. Kennedy to write a letter to Warner Brothers express, expressing that, quote, your monetary arrangements with Mr. Thorpe were an extreme case of exploitation, end quote, and continued to write that he would get his friends to boycott the film. The studio would settle on a payment of $12,500 and hired Thorpe as a technical advisor for the film. In order to play the role of Jim Thorpe, Lancaster, who grew up in the streets of East Harlem playing basketball and was actually an acrobat in the circus in his youth, had to learn the game of football and sought out the expertise of UCLA coach Bill Spalding for instruction, along with Thorpe, who attempted to teach Bert the art of dropkicking, which is virtually obsolete from the modern game. Lancaster also commented that this was the only contact he had with Jim during filming. The majority of his time, obviously, was spent with Curtiz, but it was not all smooth during production, as one report from the set said that Bert Lancaster attempted to attack Curtiz when Michael refused Bert's repeated request to shoot multiple takes of a scene. Nonetheless, the two were able to put together a decent product despite the turmoil. If the oversimplified script that took the liberty of Jim's personal life is the film's drawback, then the strength would certainly lie in the performances. Charles Bickford, a longtime supporting actor who I was unfamiliar with going into the film, gives a nice performance of Glenn Pop Warner and fits the bill of an older father figure to a lost young man. But the real noteworthy performance is Lancaster's portrayal as Jim Thorpe. Lancaster wasn't a Native American and he was 36 years old at the time of shooting. So watching him play Jim Thorpe in his early 20s for most of the film isn't really believable, but he gives a performance that matches the tone of the film and settles into the comfort of playing an outsider on screen. Lancaster's performances often veer towards stern and disciplined melodrama, and in most cases it favors him as it complements his large physical stature that commands attention on the screen. But in this film, he doesn't often venture into that territory, instead expressing emotion in his scenes of silence and social anxiety, along with moments of pure joy. And in the moments of rage that arrive in two distinct scenes in the second and third acts of the film, his performance is believable and even relatable without becoming over-theatrical. And despite this being a later film of Michael Curtiz, it's able to stand on its own without the need to compare it to his other films, like the ones mentioned in the beginning of this episode. Casablanca and Mildred Pierce are both classics, and will be compared to one another when the topic of conversation revolves around his best work. Though Jim Thorpe All-American isn't among his best, it's certainly watchable and doesn't feel mundane throughout. He complements Lancaster with captivating imagery through the use of high shots of football stadiums that make them look like Roman coliseums, and he crafted exciting montage sequences of football action that show his proficiency within the medium, and even incorporates stock footage of the Olympics into the film for a sense of authenticity. What especially impressed me about the film, however, is the attention to detail for the football sequences. The film is set predominantly in the 1906 to 1912 time frame, so many of the football scenes are choreographed to show how the game was played back then, right around the time when the forward pass was legalized. You'll see in one scene that the field resembles a checkerboard, 
because a quarterback was only allowed to throw the ball when he moved five yards to his left or right back then. And the checkerboard markings made it easier for the officials to track the yardage when it did happen. You'll see teams line up in the single wing in the short punt formations that are non-existent beyond smaller high school football programs today. There's even a scene where Jim kicks a field goal about a yard away from the sideline because there were no hash marks back then, so teams simply ran the next play from wherever the runner was tackled previously. Curtis used the camera and the blend of voiceover narration to capture these days of the gridiron past that make it unique for any football fan watching this film. Now, for those of you who are unaccustomed to watching films from this period, Jim Thorpe All-American will come off as staged and outdated, clearly at a time when film as a medium was executed with more of a theatrical approach before the introduction of realism came into the industry. But for football fans, there will no doubt be scenes of interest that serve as a time portal into a whole separate era of football that's almost unrecognizable today. And it also crafts an image, albeit a romanticized one, of an iconic American athlete that took a nation by storm before television captured his playing style on footage. These are obviously my own opinions, but I would recommend you check this film out if you have a couple hours and want to see old-time football or are interested in looking at a depiction of Jim Thorpe's journey through American football. I hope you all enjoy this film review. And if so, please subscribe to this podcast and share it on any platforms. And let me know what you think by going to the contact section of the footballodyssey.com. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and Instagram, and the links can be found in the description. Lastly, head to the footballodyssey.com to read a variety of curated articles on football's vast and compelling history. Thanks everyone for listening. Take care until next time.